So Money Episode 521, Ask Farnoosh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. It's Friday the 13th, y'all. Welcome to So Money. It's Ask Farnoosh time. Promise no scary questions today. Maybe some scary answers for me, but I hope you're all having a great start to the new year midway through the month and just wanted to thank everybody who's been joining our hashtag So Minty campaign on Instagram. If you follow the newsletter, if you follow me on social media, especially Instagram, then you know all about this. But just as a reminder, it's not too late to join in on the fun. What this campaign is all about is keeping us inspired, motivated throughout the month of January to accomplish part or all of our financial goal for 2017. And I know that's a very lofty request, you know, try to accomplish your whole financial achievements that you set out to achieve in 2017 in one month. But We know that a lot of us stop following our resolutions by like January 3rd. So we're just trying to keep the momentum going. And with that, we have started with Mint, a fun campaign on their Instagram. They've let me take over their Instagram feed for the entire month of January. I'm posting Insta stories and I'm posting stuff on their feed about what I'm doing, what, you know, everyone else is doing. I'm regramming stuff and using the hashtag so minty. This is now we're entering the third week of the campaign starting on Monday. And the week is being dedicated to two, talking about showing on Instagram the sort of people and resources and apps that are keeping us accountable to our So Minty goals. So if you choose to have your So Minty goal for 2017 or for just January, be to pay off that credit card debt. What are the tools, the resources, the people that are motivating you to do so? Are you using Mint? Is your partner or parent, you know, keeping you accountable? Are you tracking things down in a journal? What are you doing? And so, you know, we just want to learn from one another. That's really the bottom line is to keep each other engaged, inspired, learning, and kicking off the new year on a high note. So thanks for everyone who's been participating and hopefully more of you will join in on the fun. And as always, I have my lovely Sophia with me. Sophia, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wanted to do a little humble brag. (laughs) I do this from time to time because it keeps my spirits up. You know, we've done over 500 episodes and occasionally I'm wondering how we're going to do the next 500. It's just one of those things where you can't believe you've gotten so far. How the heck are we going to, you know, keep it going, keep it interesting, keep it interesting for the listeners, but also for ourselves. And I was on iTunes reading reviews as I do from time to time. I love reading your reviews, even the bad ones. (laughs) I don't get too many bad ones, thankfully, but even the ones that have like the four star reviews out of five do leave some pretty important reflections and advice. And we take many to heart and to practice. But on January 2nd, we got a five star review from a lovely person who goes by the name of D Fitzpatrick. I just want to say thank you so much to this person who wrote in and giving me really the motivation to keep it going. So she writes, absolutely addicted and I'm stunned 
Never in a million years would I have guessed I'd be so addicted to a financial podcast. She says she hears our theme music in her sleep <laughs> and hoards. Yeah, right. I'm never changing that song. And she hoards episodes for her long runs. She says that I make money and the accumulation of it incredibly interesting and fun. This reviewer, D. Fitzpatrick, works in broadcasting and is constantly impressed at how Farnoosh challenges her listeners in a conversational way to expect more of themselves and their finances. And actually, I love that she brought this up because do you remember Kimra Luna, uh, one of our lovely guests from the early days? Kimra was, is a serial entrepreneur, mom of three, who went from literally living off of food stamps to within a year's time making a million dollars in revenue selling an online course. So obviously had to have her on the show. She's also a very dynamic, cool, spunky chick. She's got like blue hair. She Her dream was to always be a rock star. And truly she is in many measures. But once we started talking, I realized that she has completely relinquished control and oversight of her finances to her husband, who I'm sure is a lovely person. But her excuse was, well, I just, I just don't like doing it. I don't like tracking the numbers. It just, you know, I'd rather just earn the money. And I was like, girlfriend, reality check. Okay. Remember that? And people came and wrote in and were like, thank you for saying something because it's important. I think that it's one thing to be good at making money, but you have to also be in control of it and have an awareness of where that money's going. And she was saying, well, I asked my husband for money and he gives it to me from our bank account. And I was like, you're undermining yourself, right? Because I think sometimes we underestimate our ability to have the capacity to actually take control of our finances. You can do it. It's not rocket science. And this BS that you're scared of it or you're not good at it, it's just a silly story you've been telling yourself. Um, And so get over it because the sooner you do, the better your life will become. And I, again, I hope her husband, I trust he's a great person and he's not going to run away. But guess what? Giving someone else the full reins, the keys to your financial wealth, even though you're married, that's one thing. But like, you know, I've heard too many crazy stories to not at least speak my truth. <laughs> and so I guess this reviewer listened to that episode and or others that where I kind of called my guest out on their shenanigans. And so uh, I appreciate that she appreciates that because, you know, it's my personality to do that. So and I guess that's why people either love the show or they don't listen. But it is what it is, folks. And thank you so much, Dee Fitzpatrick. She goes on to say that she hopes that I will stick around for 500 more episodes. So Sophia, we have, we owe it to her. (laughs) If no one else to keep it going for another 500 and we will, I think we have a lot of, of great content to look forward to this year in particular, because it's going to be a very interesting year politically, economically, socially, and all of that, of course, is going to feed into how we feel and act with our money. So stay tuned. Lots more in store for all of you. And so let's get to it. Let's get to our question, Sophia. But oh, wait a minute. Let's do this. I forgot. I know this is last thing before we get to the questions. So many moment of 2017. Have you had one yet? I have not specifically, but I do have a goal that I'm setting forth for myself this year, which is 
I've never started a vacation fund, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm signing myself up. I've made its own bucket. I've taken some of the advice that we've gotten from some of our guests in the past, and I'm starting to create different buckets and creating different savings goals. So I've always had, you know, I'm accumulating money to contribute to my IRA for this year, things like that. But so now I want to start a vacation fund. So that's my goal for 2017. And I've I've opened one up. I'm starting that. So I guess it's kind of my so money moment, but also kind of at the same time, my so minty goal. Yes. I like it. Better share that on Instagram. Okay. <laughs> I will. I will. Okay. I love that. You know, you, you know, I think it's great that you've been, it sounds like you've been very responsible with your money from what I've heard. And um, it's nice to know that you're also looking to intentionally enjoy your money because that is also why we work so hard. And so I look forward to hearing your vacation plans. Just make sure you put in the time. <laughs> Let me know ahead of time before you before you leave town. Don't worry, you'll know, you'll know. <laughs> um, cool. But what's and yours? Then, yeah, for me, I have two things I need to do this month, and one is do a five twenty nine for the next baby, and which is pretty boring but important. And then the other is that you know I was watching the Today Show the other day. While I was backstage at the Today Show, you were with me. We were on the Today Show. I was. Sophia was behind the cameras. On January 2nd, we had a segment on uh, best things to buy in January. Previous to that segment was Jean Chatsky's segment. As you know, Jean Chatsky is the financial editor at the Today Show. She's been on the show. She was my first boss. Um, She was talking about retirement. And one of the benchmarks that she said is important to hit is like, you know, generally speaking, now don't like, you know, hold her to this, but this is kind of generally the, a good rule of thumb. By the time you reach 40, you should have three times your salary saved in a retirement account. So I looked at myself. I'm not 40 yet. I have three and a half more years to go or in change. I'm not really on track to hit that perfectly. So I want to just because I heard that and I go, Look, I, I want to at least do that. So In the effort to get to that goal, I want to start automatically putting aside, you know, some money and on top of what I'm already contributing to my, in my case, a SEP IRA because I own a business, but also to my online platform. I invest with um, Charles Schwab. They have an online platform there, you know, as much as I can to reach, to basically fill that gap to get to 40 with three times my income saved. And then maybe uh, I'll like buy something nice (laughs) when I get there. But that's, I don't know, it's a long-term goal, but um, I figured, you know, I have the money, just consciously set it aside, take my own advice and be done with it. All right. So questions. We have many, we usually do about five every episode and we have one here. Uh, let me just pull it up. Nick, right? He's got an emergency fund. Yeah. So he he's been building. Yeah. So he's been building up his emergency fund, and he's really happy with all the progress that he's making. But he's also considering a two-month leave from work. He wants to go on and tackle some side projects because ultimately he wants to get a new job that he might enjoy more. So he wants to know if he should have a separate savings fund other than his emergency fund for this goal, or if he can keep that money in the same account. Mm -hmm. Well, Nick, timely question, because I was just working on an Oprah article about how to responsibly leave your job without another one lined up. And that's coming out, I believe it was the March or April issue. Do you remember which one? I think it's the April issue. April. So not going to make you wait for that issue to come out, Nick, but basically your situation 
really is similar to the one that I was focusing on for that article. Like what to what advice to give those of us who want to leave work, that we're unhappy for whatever reason, or we're just we want to get out and move on. And you know, they always say it's better to leave a job when you have one lined up. But many of us are just saying, you know what, I'm quitting. And now with the freelance economy and maybe some savings, I can piece it together and make it work and find another job quickly. And if you are young and not an expensive hire, that could be your case. So I don't know how old Nick is. I don't know what industry he's in, how competitive the job market is, how quickly he could find a job. But one of the things, Nick, that I did discover in doing the research for this article is that when people leave a job, whether voluntarily or they get laid off, it takes right now an average six to seven months to find your next gig full-time, full-time, full-income replacement. Now, that doesn't mean that in the meantime, you can't find other work that's freelance, that's here and there, income coming in. So what I would say, Nick, is that it's important to have a cushion of some sort, at least, I would say at least six months before calling it quits, because that may be realistically the length of time it takes for you to find another job that pays you enough to keep the lights on and then some. Whether or not you need to create a separate account for this, not necessary. However, if you're the kind of person that's motivated visually by seeing money specifically for a certain goal or journey set aside, then do that. If that can help you, then by all means do that. But at the end of the day, it just it's important that you have the money and it's there and that you trust yourself not to use it frivolously, that it's really there to help pay for the needs that you need to cover during this time off. And I would really strongly encourage you to find ways to bring in some additional income if possible, if even if it's not consistent, just something to do. Not only will that help to you know, add to that cushion, that financial stability that you'll need during this time off. But also, if it's relevant work to the next step that you want to take, that will only help you kind of steer you in the right path, make the connections that you need to make, and continue to be relevant in the industry that you want to work in. So I love that you're taking this initiative because I think many of us are burnt out at work and we wait and wait and wait until we are just, you know, maybe find that next job that we're not totally in love with, but hey, it's better than what we've got now. So we take it, but it's, it's very brave and bold of you to do this. And I would say that if you can do it financially, if it, you can make it work, you're never going to know if you have quote unquote enough to make the leap, but it's better to have something than nothing. And it's better to have a plan than no plan during your time off. So congrats, Nick. Let us know how things go. I'd be curious to hear how your time off goes and what it leads to. I think I've heard a lot of success stories, so I, I wish the same for you. All right. Good question. We have a question now from Desiree. Yeah. She's a... Uh, looking to, she's got a housing question. Yeah. So it'll be two years next month since she and her husband declared bankruptcy and they currently are living in one of their friend's homes and their friends would like to sell them the property. But she knows that with their bankruptcy, it's brought down their credit score and they also still have about 25,000 in combined student loan, credit card and medical debt. So they want to know what is the appropriate amount of time to let pass before applying for a home loan after bankruptcy and if they should apply for the loan while they still have this other debt. Well, this is a technical question and also I think maybe an emotional question. You know, Technically speaking, Desiree, a bankruptcy 
does impact negatively impact your credit report and your credit score for several years. It stays on your credit report for at least seven years. And so when you go to apply for that mortgage, assuming you're going to have to get a mortgage to buy your friend's home, the banks will see that you have this bankruptcy in your past. Now, they're also going to look at your credit score which will also be right now probably rehabilitating. So look at your credit score. Is it in the high 600s, in the 700s, where it really should be to get you to qualify for good, strong interest rates, low interest rates right now, so that you can make this housing payment affordably? And if it's not where it needs to be, really, then I think you need to let more time pass. So technically, mathematically speaking, that's one way to answer the question. But the other part of the question, I think, is are you, you know, do you have the psychological capacity to take this on? Um, looks like you still have a lot on your plate. You have $25,000 in student loan debt, credit card debt, medical debt. You're still maybe reeling from the bankruptcy a little bit. So I think maybe taking on a house that you own could be just another stress. Uh, that you don't need right now. I mean, the good news is that you have a home that you're in that you can afford that is allowing you hopefully to recover from the bankruptcy, pay off the debt, live a little bit more frugally. Doesn't mean that in the meantime, you can't be saving for this home, right? You can't be saving up for the down payment. You can't be increasing your credit score. So I would say combined, you know, just know what we know and what we know about the realities of what a bankruptcy will look like on your credit report, how that impacts your credit score, the reality that you have also more debt to deal with. And the fact that, you know, you need time to heal a little bit emotionally from the wounds of this bankruptcy that have maybe left you feeling overwhelmed and stressed. So I would just say, don't rush into things. If your friends would like to sell you their home and they're not in a rush, See if they'll be willing to work out maybe a rent to own situation where you pay the rent and then a percentage of that might go into a down payment for the future and that you could use to then later purchase the home or that, you know, they'll just wait, wait it out and continue to have you rent. And then in a couple of years, revisit the whole purchasing prospect because, you know, at that point, you're going to have to involve a bank. They're not going to be so considerate. You know, they're going to want to just see that you have strong credit, not a lot of debt, good income, good savings. And you want to be able to buy this house knowing that it's not going to be a financial burden, right? And remember, owning a home is not just the mortgage. It's the maintenance. It's the taxes. It's all that other. It's the insurance. So just be aware of all of that. And I think that uh, if I were you, I wouldn't rush into this. So not to say that it can't ever happen, but definitely you can work towards it in the meantime, but definitely not something that you want to rush into. All right. I hope that wasn't a downer. Sometimes I think, like you had mentioned, you really have to see you know, how much the debt really affects you, but also... You want to make sure that you're not stretching yourself too thin and that if something happens to the home, you're able to afford any repairs and things like that. So I think that's great advice. So our next question is about umbrella insurance policies. And it comes from Mary. And she wants to know what your thoughts on them are because recently she was advised by her wealth manager to purchase one. And it would be about $30 a month for a $1 million policy. Mm-hmm. Well, I have umbrella insurance. It's something that my financial advisor at the time recommended I get. She just thought that with being that I'm someone who is, you know, in the public eye, that if in the event that someone like 
crash into me or I crash into them or they slip and fall on my house that their lawyers would come after me with the big kahunas, you know, like with the big guns because, well, it's Farnoosh and, you know, she's probably loaded. No, I'm not. But there's sometimes a perception if you own a business, if you're in the public eye, if you are well, well off that, you know, that, that you are a target sometimes for lawsuits, sometimes frivolous lawsuits, but lawsuits nonetheless that will tie you up and your finances. So an umbrella insurance policy is basically extra liability insurance that helps to protect you from claims and lawsuits in the future. Again, it's extra coverage. So it's above and beyond the limits of your homeowner's insurance policy, your car policy, your, you know, whatever other policies you have. You have to purchase this sometimes outside of your even your existing home insurer or car insurer. There are other uh, private insurers that offer this. So I think that if it's just $30 a month and it gives you peace of mind, Mary, and it's a $1 million policy, um, why not? You know, better to be safe than sorry. And here is a fun fact. I just thought it was interesting. And I've been telling you this, Sophia, for some time now because I just think it's interesting. So President Bill Clinton... Back when he was dealing with the whole Monica Lewinsky trial, he had just these compounding legal costs. But the Wall Street Journal had reported that basically he had paid for a portion of his legal and litigation expenses thanks to his umbrella insurance. (laughs) So umbrella insurance can be very encompassing, I guess, is the moral of the story. And if you have it and it's 30 bucks a month, it could be very much something that comes to the rescue in the future. Just be clear on what it will cover. That's all I would say. So while in this case with Bill Clinton, it was very expansive, you know, for $30 a month for a $1 million, $1 million policy, Mary, what actually would this help you? In what worst case scenarios? Is it if someone slips and falls in your house and files a $10 million lawsuit against you? Is it and or, you know, getting in a car accident and that driver that you hit the fender, you know, comes after you for, for millions of dollars. Like what are, what are all the uh, situations? I, I, I would just want to know before signing up. All right. Shana has job offers. We like to hear that. Happy new year, Shana. <laughs> yeah. So she has two competitive federal job offers and one is full time where she would be earning about as much money as she currently makes. And then the other is a term position with a minimum of one year and a maximum of four years at a higher salary of about $10,000 more per year. So she wants to know if you have any advice on negotiating federal salaries or what she should do. Okay, dokie. So it's really hard to negotiate federal job salaries from what I understand. I've never had a federal job, but we've had some guests on the show that have federal jobs. And it sounds like basically every year you get a predetermined or relatively consistent raise bump. And it isn't until maybe you get a master's or a higher degree or additional education or a promotion that you would get a more substantial raise. So in her case, I think the real things that she needs to compare as far as you know which job offer to take is not just necessarily the salary, but also what other perks might be involved in the job. What are the hours? What's the flexibility? Could she work from home? How much vacation does she get? You know, so really do not just a salary to salary comparison, but also all these other apples. And then what's more important to her? Having a job that is permanent, more permanent than the other job, which is just a 
short-term position of a maximum of four years? What kind of mobility is she looking for, if any? And, you know, did she talk about whether or not she has anything like a what are some other things on her plate? Did she did she say anything else, Sophia? She did say that she has some student loan debt to pay off. So okay. that's something to consider. Certainly. Also. Yeah. I mean, if this debt is a burden and taking the higher position, the higher paying position, although it's temporary, would be better in the short term, then maybe she does that. And then she takes the additional income, puts it directly towards the debt. That could be something. You know, it's also worth bringing up the fact that you have this other offer. If you really want the job that's full-time but it pays less, say, I have this other offer and um, it is with this department, it's got this salary. You know, I wouldn't necessarily talk up the fact that it's a term position because they're just going to squash you with that. Well, you know, we we offer. But look, no job is guaranteed. There's no thing that that federal job that's full-time isn't going to lay you off in six months, right? So it's not fair to say that, well, this job is more secure than the other. It's just the other job is just being more blunt about your time there. So I would just say that you have this other job offer and this is what they're offering you and it's similar responsibilities. And can they match it or do better? It can't hurt to ask. So for sure, try to negotiate. I wouldn't be surprised if they said that they can't just because they have their hands tied behind their backs because they're a government job. But you know, again, if you're really not sure what to do, just compare all angles. Really think about where you want to be in the next few years, which job is going to get you there faster. And hopefully that will help you narrow it down. Definitely. And you don't want to leave any money on the table. So like you said, I think it's worth at least asking. Because Mm -hmm. at that point, then at least, you know, you've exhausted all possibilities and you won't wonder what if in the back of your mind had you not asked. And this is the time to do it. You're totally right. I mean, this is like the time to really put all your cards out. And lay all, what's it? <laughs> lay all your cards out. Lay all your cards on the table, out, I think. <laughs> yeah. This is a time to really be clear about what you'd like. And the good news is you've got two job offers. You have two employers that want you and never feel that bringing up this topic of money or benefits negotiation is going to make you a lesser appealing candidate. They they should be used to this by now. It's only us on the asking side. We sometimes feel intimidated and sometimes maybe inappropriate asking, but believe me, I mean, um, as an employer, as someone who's negotiated a lot, and someone who's just talked to a lot of people about this process, it is just business as usual. So we're already at our last question. Already? We already. (laughs) And it's from Chris. He wants to start gifting his nephews and nieces some money. And he wants to know how he should go about it. There are six kids in total, and they're all under the age of six. And he says, I don't need to give them each the same thing consecutively, but would like to start with the eldest on his or her sixth birthday, maybe like a sixth birthday gift money tradition. And he'd love to know your thoughts. That's cute, Chris. I love this. I love that uncles and aunts and, you know, relatives are looking to help out their their family, their youngsters. And so I would say, Chris, the first thing to do if I were you is to have a conversation with your siblings, the parents, see what they think about this. Not to say that, you know, they need to give you necessarily like approval, but it helps to just also figure out what the priorities are in the family. If, if there is like a lack 
for college savings. That might be an area that you could appropriate your your money gift too. And because you said this is something that you want them to have for long term, it's not like for buying bicycles and candy, that that could be something very useful, not just for the children, but also for the entire family. So talking to the parents is the first step. I would also then engage maybe starting with your eldest, her the six-year-old on her birth or a little bit before the birthday, say, hey, for your birthday, I'd like to start contributing some money towards your future. And I want to engage you in this. And I want you to be a part Part of this and and have her or him talk about what they would like to accomplish when you know in the future do they want to go to school do they want to you know travel abroad do they want to start their own business you know get them excited about it too so that they can attach meaning to this gift and it's not just money sitting in a bank account for them i would do a direct transfer as well somewhere where they can see the money grow and there's a few websites out there that parents and family can contribute to a goal for anyone. And in this case, it would be for your young nieces and nephews where then they can access the account as well and kind of watch the money grow. And I think it's important for the kids again to to be involved and to really develop a sense of appreciation. And very pertaining to this question that you ask, we actually coincidentally have a guest on this Monday. So I would encourage you to tune in on Monday. I'm interviewing Tanya Van Court. She's the founder of a, a new website called iso.com, I-S-O-W.com. And it basically caters to young people and their parents, their loved ones, people like you who want to gift young people money towards their goals. And the kids can then choose goals on this website Uh, in three categories, actually, saving towards their future, sharing uh, that money, that savings with those who are less fortunate, so charities and nonprofits and people, and then spending wisely on things that matter is the third category. So back to what I was saying about engaging your nieces and nephews, this could be a great site to for all of you to log on to and kind of pick out the goal and you can contribute directly to their goal on this website. And I think it could be a lot of fun. The site's growing. It's very new, but it's getting a lot of buzz and it has about a thousand members. So listen to that episode with Tanya. She is phenomenal. The website is iso.com. And I'm so excited and so... Um, I'm so touched to hear that you're doing this for your nieces and nephews. I think that's really wonderful and happy new year to you and your family. Thank you so much, Sophia, for uh, ushering us through all these questions as usual. Of course. And I will just, just remind everybody that, you know, our so minty campaign will be continuing throughout January. We're about the, at the halfway point now. So if you're not yet, please follow at mint app on Instagram where you'll also be able to follow me as I take over the handle, take over the feed and start to post and well, not start, but continue to post all sorts of motivational things around uh, financial goal setting in the new year. And we would love for you to share yours. So use the hashtag so minty on Instagram so we can find you and repost you and brag about you and keep you also motivated. Thanks so much, everyone. And I hope your weekend is so money. 